Extra Crispy, a podcast of curious conversations on creativity, culture, and spirituality with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. So today's podcast is another mono crisp. It's just me talking to you. I do have some guests scheduled, uh, a a few of them in the next few weeks, uh, but I just wanted to kind of jump off of uh, some of what I've said on the last podcast and really tie it into some of what I've been saying on some of the other podcasts recently. So I just want to thank everybody who's listening to this and those who have gone on iTunes and given us a review. For those who are sharing the podcast with other people and sharing it on social media, really appreciate it. And uh, the title of this episode today, I think we're going to call this Play Actors. So... Let's head to this extra crispy mono crisp. Play actors. Thanks for listening. If you were of a certain age back in the 80s, chances are, like most Americans, each week you would watch The Cosby Show. The Cosby Show was the most popular show in America for the first four years after it debuted. And still to this day, there's never been a TV show that stayed number one for that long. The Cosby Show was credited with reviving the whole sitcom genre, which had fallen out of popularity for several years before. It was also credited with pulling NBC up in the ratings because NBC's ratings at the time had been in the toilet. But The Cosby Show really was interesting for for several reasons. It was the first sitcom which featured a wealthy, you know, upper class black family. Mr. Huxable, played by Cosby, was an obstetrician. His wife, Claire, was an attorney. And each episode featured not only comedy, but also delved into many of the difficult issues that you face in a family. Now, this was before the cynical picture of families that began to emerge in 90s sitcoms with shows like Married with Children and The Simpsons. In The Cosby Show, Bill Cosby was a well-respected, wise patriarch of the family. And really, coming out of The Cosby Show, Bill Cosby was solidified in the imagination of Americans as this paragon of integrity, one who was always talking about doing the right thing, uh, living with integrity, treating others with respect. And so coming out of the Cosby show, that was kind of Bill Cosby's voice in our culture. He was known for speaking on these issues, which made it so hard to believe when the accusations against Bill Cosby first began to surface back in 2014, at least in a public way. Turns out the accusations had been around a while. But back in 2014, we see a handful of women accusing Bill Cosby of drugging them and raping them. And what starts with just a handful of accusers quickly swelled to well over 30 women who had all said 
that Cosby had done similar acts of sexual abuse to them. And perhaps these accusations of Cosby, uh, you know, against Cosby were actually some of the first shakings that would materialize a couple of years ago into the Me Too movement, which is still going on, which no doubt actually started first in Hollywood with accusations against folks such as Harvey Weinstein and went on to include folks like Kevin Spacey and many others and, you know, even branched out of Hollywood to to expose politicians, businessmen, and clergy alike. I share all this because it reveals how we often see somebody who is a good actor, they're good at acting, and we assume if they're really good at acting that they're not even acting at all. You know, when you see someone that is so good at making their role believable and you can connect with it and they just know all the nuances of body language and conveying emotions and it connects with you in a deep level, we tend to assume that they're not even acting at all, that this is who they really are. And I think that this is what happened with Americans and Bill Cosby. And that's why it was so hard to believe the accusations when they first began to surface. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, one of Jesus's most used terms to refer to the Pharisees, if not the most used term, was play actors. Jesus says, you're just, you're just a bunch of play actors. You're like a cup sitting up on the shelf that looks perfectly clean until you pull it off the shelf and you look inside it and it's just nasty. <laughs> he said, you're, you, you Pharisees, you're, you're play actors. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're, you look all ornate and pristine on the outside, but that hides the fact that you're filled with dead men's bones. Pretty harsh language. And, and that's just a couple of examples. But chances are, if you've read the Gospels, you may not have ever even seen that term play actors before because most Bibles translate the word into hypocrite, which obviously hypocrite is not that far removed. But hypocrite was actually a word that had existed for centuries before Jesus comes on the scene, and it was not a derogatory term initially. It was simply a term of just saying play actors. It was referring to people who would act, put on these theatrical productions. So, you know, 300 BC, you're living in Athens. You've been working hard all week. You want to unwind. You might tell your friend, you know, I'm thinking tonight I'm going to go downtown and watch the hypocrites put on a production of Homer's Odyssey. And that wouldn't be a term of derision. You'd just be saying, I'm just going to go watch the actors. But Jesus takes this word hypocrites, or hypocrite, and he applies it to the Pharisees. And, and he exposes something about their spirituality or their religion. Now, in the last few podcasts, I, I did a little series a few episodes ago called Into the Mystic. And I was talking about the relationship between mysticism and religion and how oftentimes religion is this form that maybe has its roots in mysticism but it becomes solidified and at some point 
we mistake the tools for the life themselves. We we would mistake the rituals, the beliefs for the actual life itself, which is a fatal error in spirituality. But it was certainly one that Jesus accused the Pharisees of propagating. In the previous episode, I mentioned one of my favorite sayings of Jesus, not because I'm good at following it, but because I I, I think it really gets down to what true spirituality is. Jesus says, before you set about to remove the speck from your neighbor's eye, deal with the plank in your own eye. In other words, before you set out to change everything in society, before you become such a champion of morality and social causes, do the hard work of starting with yourself. Because so often, the things that we attack in society and in other people, the things that we hate in others are really things that we hate in ourselves. And there is something, I think, psychologically going on that oftentimes we feel if we can fight it out there, we will win the battle uh, in, in our own hearts. If I, if I can just crusade against this thing, then it, it will cure that within. But, but Jesus says, no, you start with yourself. You do the hard work of facing the darkness within your own soul, facing your own struggles, working through those things so that you will actually be able to see so that you can take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Because oftentimes, that's, that's the thing. We may be great communicators. We may be great at using social media and getting people riled up for our cause. But we can't really even discern things because we got this big thing in our eye, this big plank, this two-by-four that is obscuring our vision. So Jesus invites us to deal with stuff on the inside. Well, how do we do that? (laughs) That's great, Jesus. How do we do that? Well, I want to talk a little bit about this today. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses so many different aspects of spirituality. But one thing that he, he consistently gets to is the motives. And I think that this is huge. As I said in the last episode, your core motivations can propel you or they can ultimately derail you if you don't deal with things on the inside. So in Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to be reading from the message translation by Eugene Peterson, which, quick plug, back in the fall we did an episode just after Eugene Peterson passed away called Remembering Eugene Peterson, which is a fantastic episode. But this is his translation of the New Testament, and I I find it's just uh, a little bit uh, better at getting to the nuance of the text. So this is Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 6 from the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action. I'm sure play actors, I call them, treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds. They get applause, true, but that's all they get. 
When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. So the first thing that Jesus deals with is doing good. (laughs) Is it possible to do good for others? Does it count if you don't post it on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter? Is it possible to to do good in the world without, you know, marketing it and and saying, you know, showing people, look at how good I am. (laughs) Yes, it is. And Jesus would say, that's actually the better path to go. I remember back in the 80s, there was the rise of what became known as the religious right. You had folks like Jerry Falwell and TV preachers, Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker and all these folks who were taking to media, uh, TV at the time, and really coming out strongly against certain moral issues, coming out uh, in in favor of certain political ideologies to the point where by the mid-90s, I know when I was just a, a young Christian, it was commonly... In the, in the circles that I ran, like it was commonly understood that you couldn't even be a Christian if you weren't a Republican. And because people had, had so lumped in their belief on certain issues with, they'd lumped that into their Christianity. And this has really been one of the most detrimental things to evangelicalism is because I, I think particularly in the, in the last five years, so many people who have publicly attach their faith to a political position, it has become obvious to many that that modern evangelicalism has more to do with getting political power than it does with actually entrusting oneself to Christ. And so it, it's a weird time that we're living in where evangelicals have seemed to get behind many things that, that don't really match uh, the attitudes of Christ or what we see laid out by Jesus and his teachings, whereas now we see on the progressive left that the, the, the progressive left has become the new moral police. And now I'm starting to see on the left how this very much merging of Christianity with stances on particular issues and grasping for power is now, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of shifted. The polarity has shifted. And when I look at Twitter, whether it's folks on the right or folks on the left or wherever, I think so much of what, you know, excels in social media land is being known for your stance on a position. And the reality is having an opinion on an issue is the easiest thing in the world. I mean, we're all opinionated, and social media gives us a platform. Heck, I got a platform on this podcast to give my opinions. I get it. But the problem is that so often our opinions are based on like these abstract issues of which we have very little actual knowledge or experience with. And so oftentimes our sharing of our opinions is really a type of virtue signaling. It is getting us points within our own tribe. You know, we're preaching to the choir, 
and we are getting applause from the members of our tribe that we want to impress with our stances and our witty commentary on the events going on out in the world. And look, having a stance on positions and sharing that, I I don't have a problem with that. Obviously, I've got a podcast where I do this. But when you look at the play actors that Jesus keeps referring to throughout the Gospels, the Pharisees, that was part of their issue. They had become so enamored with their own stance on all these issues. I mean, the the Pharisees came up with another 200 rules to the existing hundreds, I don't know, 600 rules in the Old Testament. They they came up with another 200 and it was uh they they were identity markers. And and as Jesus says, you know, you <laughs> you you go over land and sea to win a convert and then you make them twice the son of hell that you are. <laughs> And sometimes we become so enamored with our own stance within our tribe and our group and signaling our virtue to other people that we actually forget about actual people that are really affected with things. We forget about our own trying to navigate these issues on the ground. So rather than our lives being this presence that shine light and illuminate the issues and and truly engage them in a wise way, these issues and our opinions on them just become another mask, another way of pretending and, and playing to the crowds. And this is where these teachings of Jesus really cut straight down to the heart because Jesus is getting at the motivation. What is going on on the inside? Are you doing good things? For others, just for applause? Are you trying to appear to be super spiritual? Are you just signaling to your group so you can get points in your little tribe? Well, you can do that. And in fact, that's the most normal thing to do. That is the way of the world. But that won't really bring change and transformation and true sight. And look, I'm not saying this because I've eliminated all hypocrisy from my own life. I, you know, like this podcast, could it, this could be my version of signaling to others, you know, and getting their accolades. I'm, I'm aware of that. Uh, I've got my own issues, and I care what other people think, and I like being seen as, as, a, as a good guy who you know, cares for other people. I I like that as much as the next guy. But the invitation of Christ is to find another way. Not that we abandon doing good or abandon, you know, having positions on issues or, you know, abandon prayer and, and spiritual disciplines, but that we do those from a different kind of motivation, which really has to do with ultimately trusting in God, trusting in something that is bigger than our finite, limited perspective on the world and our feelings and our opinions about those things. Jesus continues in verse 5, he says, and when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show out of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there 
as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense His grace. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. I I have to be honest. (laughs) Over my years of being in ministry, I think I've been in ministry, I don't know, around 25 years in some form or fashion, and I've been to numerous pastors meetings and conferences and I got to tell you I I don't often like going to pastors meetings because you know particularly you know you get 30 or 40 pastors around it comes time for prayer or something and and it just can so easily turn into this I'm going to use prayer to push my agenda or to look spiritual I'm going to use King James English and I I want to be you know so so prayer ends up becoming this kind of gross thing <laughs> And look, I'm I'm not saying that just for other people. I've done the same thing myself. I mean, even even leading worship in certain gatherings, I find sometimes I've been so insecure about you know leading that it's it it really is more about the approval of other people. So I'm not pointing my finger. I'm just saying that this is a real issue. And Jesus gets down to it. He says, when it comes to prayer, don't just try to you know. Act like you got it all together before God. God already knows you. He already sees everything. He knows your motives. Just be honest. Just come before God. Naked innocence. There was a song back in the 90s, Pray Naked. (laughs) Um, That that we, we come before the Lord. We don't put a mask on. We don't act like we got it all together. We just realize that God already knows everything that's going on. So we can come simply. And And he says, you know, Maybe instead of trying to pray around other people, find a quiet place. Just find somewhere where you can be yourself before the Lord without being tempted to look like you got it all together. I found this to be revolutionary in in, in my own life. You know, uh, oftentimes my prayer times are just sitting on my back porch in the evening in the dark when nobody's around. I can honestly talk to God or I'll go take a walk in nature. And if people happen to be around, I'll just pull out my phone like I'm uh, having a conversation with someone else and they don't even know that I'm praying. (laughs) I've got a direct line to the Almighty. (laughs) So Jesus continues talking about prayer. And I'm I'm skipping a little bit of, of the Lord's Prayer that he just introduced, but he moves on to even spiritual disciplines, particularly fasting. He says this, in prayer, there's a connection between what God does and what you do. You can't get forgiveness from God, for instance, without forgiving others. If you refuse to do your part, you cut yourself off from God's part. And when you practice some appetite denying discipline to better concentrate on God, don't make a production out of it. It might turn you into a small time celebrity, but it won't make you a saint. If you go into training inwardly, act normal outwardly. Shampoo, comb your hair, brush your teeth, wash your face. God doesn't require attention-getting devices. He won't overlook what you are doing. He'll reward you well. A few years ago, it became quite trendy to see people post on Facebook and Twitter 
I'm, I'm fasting social media for Lent. I'm going to give it up. I'm going to suffer for Jesus. <laughs> We're like, wow. And then as soon as Lent was over, they, they would post a blog about how hard it was and all the lessons that they learned. <laughs> and look, fasting's hard, whether it's social media or chocolate or giving up meat or what, whatever you're trying to fast from, Netflix. Um, but, but Jesus reminds us the benefit, the reason why we do this is really to connect with God. Dude, are you, you feeling okay? You got the flu? No, man, I just, I, I gave up chocolate a couple of weeks ago, man. I'm really suffering. Jesus says, again, like, like guard against the temptation. We all want to look like we're more spiritual. We all want to look like we have it more together than we actually do. I mean, nobody posts, you know, arguments with their spouse on Facebook or arguments with their kids. We don't post selfies of ourselves first thing in the morning, you know, when our hair is all messed up. We want to look good. We want to project our idealized self, which is just, just another form of our ego. And Jesus is telling us in all three of these aspects, whether it's doing good for others or prayer or even fasting, be careful of the things that motivate you. And 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 take care that, that when you're fasting, don't just look like, oh man, I just feel so bad. I'm just, but I'm doing this for Jesus. Again, the only reward you get is perhaps, you know, the applause of other people. Now, again, I want to go back to this connection between mysticism and religion. I haven't fully unpacked why religion is necessary, but religion is very helpful. You know, learning to pray alone with God, learning to do good for others when nobody sees it, learning how to take on spiritual disciplines uh, without looking like you're just suffering. This is really huge. And if if you, you take that approach, those religious um, practices will actually help form you and may actually become the place where you experience an encounter with God. So they, they can lead to a mystical encounter with God. But the problem is oftentimes we take these practices, these tools, these rituals, and we make them God uh, instead of seeing them as ways of helping us connect with God. And the Bible would call that a idolatry. You know, we, we, we elevate the form itself to something divine rather than seeing it as something that helps us connect with the divine. So I think a good way to just deal with these teachings of Jesus and maybe find a way to, to incorporate them into our lives is to just say a little prayer this morning or whenever you're listening to this, just say, you know, God, I just pray that you would open my eyes to how much I play act throughout a day, whether it's with spiritual things or with work or whatever, how much I am motivated by trying to look a certain way in front of other people. Just pray for some awareness of that. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, prayers that I have found so helpful in my faith uh, actually comes from the Jesuits. It's called the Prayer of Examine. So 
I, I think the actual Jesuits, they do this prayer about three times a day. Uh, I may do it once or twice in a week. I like doing it to the end of the day right before I go to bed, but it's basically where you replay your day. You think about you know, your, your first waking moments in the morning. What were you thinking about? What was your attitude? You know, did you wake up in a place of anxiety? Did you just wake up feeling refreshed? Were you looking forward to the day? And then you just play back your day. Remember the different uh, encounters with other people that you faced, the the different uh, experiences that you had throughout the day, and try to pay attention to how you were feeling. Was I feeling anxious? Was I insecure? Was I happy? Was I trying to impress other people? And... As you go throughout the day, you finally get to, to the present moment. And then when you get there, you just say, you know, God, I'm, I'm thankful for any ways that you helped me to live connected to other people, to, to live from a place of love and compassion and empathy and honesty with others. And then any ways that, that you have, you know, you can look back and you're like, oh, gosh, I, I was really anxious or insecure, then just offer those to the Lord too. God, I, I see that this is a weakness. I acknowledge it. I bring it before you. God, give me the grace to um, be better in this tomorrow. Thank you. Amen. A simple prayer. But, but what I'm getting at with all of this is when it comes to dealing with the plank in our own eye, this is where these spiritual disciplines can really help us as we incorporate these things, as we start dealing with that part of us, our ego that wants to be seen as amazing and all together and spiritual. As we deal with that, we begin to be formed on the inside with something of substance to where now, you know, eventually, you know, you do this long enough. Now you're not so concerned about the opinion of other people you're not so living in, in a purely external place. You're living from a true changed heart. Thanks for listening to Extra Crispy.